Lord, as we look at these words uh, from the scriptures, would you help us to uh, get past words to the possibility of encountering you, our living God, and knowing your presence in our midst here today? Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Can we switch over to my screen? Look at that. Do you remember those? Anybody have one? Anybody ever have one of those? Ford Sierra? No? I thought, well, I did. Well done. The coolest people in the world had Ford Sierras. Uh, that was the only brand new car, or the first brand new car that we ever owned. And when we got that car, we had uh, a sort of nursery school age child and a little baby, and a third one probably not very far away. Um, I say it's the first brand new car we owned, because in actual fact it went wrong, and I took it back to the dealer, and they very kindly gave me all my money back. Uh, so we had a second brand new car, but it was a Volvo. Uh, we decided away from Ford after that. Do you, can, can, I don't want to waste a whole lot of time, but you want me to tell you what it did? I was coming down the M2, uh, you know the big slopey bit, where you, where if it's three o'clock in the morning, you can see how fast this car will go. Uh, but anyway, it wasn't three o'clock in the morning, it was a busy road, I was in the middle lane, uh, so cars either side of me, uh, and the alarm went off while I was driving. So the alarm goes off, it switches off the engine. So here was me going down this hill, uh, you know, 70 miles per hour, and suddenly the lights are all flashing and the, and the engine cuts out. So I'm trying not to panic. It's reasonably straight, straight although it does start to bend as you get to the bottom. Um, so the, the button for the, it was very modern, the button for the alarm was on the keys. So I'm beeping it, but it won't work while it's in the car. So next thing we had to do was buzz the window down, pull the keys out of the, yeah, so you're beginning to look terrified. I was terrified because I'm thinking once these keys are out and we start to turn, we lock the steering here, yeah? So hand out the window with the alarm beeping it and of course two or three goes and it did beep back in and the engine turned on and we sailed round the bend at the bottom. But a wee mo the children weren't in it at the time, okay? It was just me. Uh, so the next day I took it back to the garage and said this car's going to kill us. So they gave us our money back. Uh, and we then heard a wee while later a whole load of them were recalled. There was something wrong. So I tell you that for no, other, for no reason at all, except to say that when you get a brand new car and it's out in the driveway, you go out first thing every morning, don't you, to have another look at it? Just to walk around and think, oh, isn't it beautiful? There's not a scratch, there's not a scratch anywhere. And when the children get out, oh, well, there's no eating in the brand new car. Oh, I'm on a wire well spotted, Janice. Okay, good, that would have been bad. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, all that. And then there's the day comes when you realize there's a stain on one of the seats, uh, or something has spilled in the boot, um, or somebody has banged a trolley into the side of it. And there's two, two ways you can react to that. Well, a number of ways you can react to that. One is that you wash it even more, you vacuum it even more, you go and buy stain remover and you try to get it back to the pristine condition in which you got it. But no matter how hard you try that, it does wear out. There's no way around it. It, it will eventually 
show signs of wear and tear. But you can try your best to keep it like that. Or you can do the other thing, is you just give up entirely and start eating ice cream and crisps <laughs> and everything else in it. Well, if you, if you read the letter to the Philippians, allowing for, as Michael told us last week, 20 or 30 years have passed since those glorious moments when St. Paul uh, and some of the other apostles had come to Philippi, and they had met Lydia and this group of Jewish women praying on the side of the river on the Sabbath as their sort of synagogue experience, and they have responded to this gospel about Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And then a few days later, after Paul has been put in prison, along with Silas, <coughs> and they are released, well, there's this miracle happens in the prison, and the Philippian jailer, a Roman employee of Rome, and his whole, house, his whole household respond to the gospel. And within hours and days, there's a brand new community of faith, of disciples of Jesus Christ meeting in Lydia's house. So if you jump forwards 20 to 30 years to when you read the letter, you begin to realize that what began as a shiny, brand new Ford Sierra estate now has all sorts of bumps and dents and scrapes in it because these are people like us, right? So things don't stay brand new. So when you read the, the whole of Philippians as a, as a letter, uh, one of the things you have to do with letters in the New Testament is you have to read the content of them and then try to guess what the questions were because the letter is the answers or the replies. So when you begin to think, wonder what they were asking, uh, you come up with all sorts of ideas of why would Paul have written that? What might have been brought to him as a message? Because there were messengers who went backwards and forwards between them all. And today's uh, Bible reading, which you have already responded to, because this is the canticle that we read uh, it's in the prayer book, but it's taken from Philippians chapter 2. And when you read this, one of the things, one of the reasons why Paul might have written this was because these people in Philippi, unlike you and me, don't have Bibles. They, people living in Philippi are very far removed from Israel, where Jesus walked around, where the people who knew Jesus his family, his followers, even 20, 30 years later, there's still people in Israel and Judea um, who remember him, who are able to tell the stories that he told. Do you remember the one he told us about the sheep? Or do you remember the day we were all out in the fields and with no food? Uh, they're able to tell these stories. So these stories are circulating all around the place and, of course, then become the Gospels. But in Philippi, in northern Greece, you're probably guessing... There's the occasional traveler or merchant goes past with some of those stories. But apart from that, what are these people basing their faith on? How are they trying to, how are they supposed to know? So I'm guessing this is partly St. Paul saying, I'm going to describe Jesus to them. So they've got something written down in their very own hands in their city among them in their meetings in their houses or wherever they're meeting that they can actually look at. So let's just read it again. I'm sorry it's very small, but bits of it are going to get bigger in a moment or two. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So let me go back to the start and let me do something with my hand. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man or as a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and not just any death, even death on a cross. Therefore, huge word, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, and I can't get my hand high enough for where Jesus now resides, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's this story. And Paul thinks it's worth sharing this with them and letting them have this to learn off by heart, I'm going to suggest. So that this is the heart and at the very center of what we're believing about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So let me, let me just pick you up very quickly a couple of wee snippets out of this. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, I have a Bible at home called the Amplified Bible, and uh, it very cleverly, well, there's what it does. It puts in brackets after little phrases, uh, other ways to translate those phrases. So, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or something to be grasped, or something to cling on to, or something to defend. So, I'm going to suggest that what we're being given here first is an attitude. Jesus, who was God, he was the second person of the Trinity, but he knew something needed to be done on planet Earth for humanity and for the whole of creation, if you want to think about it in its greater form. And he realized that there is something that can't be achieved while he's clinging to it. And that is that if he's clinging to his position in the heavenly realm, uh, seated on the throne, or whatever, if he's clinging to that, he can't do what's necessary to become one of us and to work out the salvation of the world. So clinging to this, and therefore, if he decides not to cling to this, what I think we're being, is being hinted at here is that he willingly let go. Yeah? I tried this on a couple of people this week. Of remember, and I, I may have got it wrong, remember in the Titanic movie, Leonardo DiCaprio at the end clinging to the floating wardrobe or bed or wherever it was. And there's a, a moment when he lets go. So that there's something entirely voluntary in the second person of the Trinity's attitude to everything that was and is his, that he's prepared to let go. 
wasn't forced into this. He let go of his equality with God because he was God. He's in God. And I don't know if you remember this movie, Trading Places. Do you remember this? Where Eddie Murphy uh, is the sort of down and out on the streets. Dan Aykroyd is the wealthy, uh, is he a banker or some sort of business person? Loads of money, uh, everything you could ever want. Uh, and the story of the movie is that uh, the two end up switched places as an experiment to see if Eddie Murphy from Down and Out on the Streets could run the business and if Dan Aykroyd, uh, as wealthy, got everything going his way, could survive without it all. But in behind the story, as we know the reality, is they can swap back. but not Jesus. Let me go on to the next. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And the other possible translations of he made himself nothing are he emptied himself or he gave it all away. So I'm suggesting here that we've had an attitude and now we have an action of what Jesus did. He made himself nothing. Dan Aykroyd in the movie didn't make himself nothing. It was forced on him uh, by the business as an experiment. But all the time he knew he could turn it around. But I think we find in the life and actions of Jesus, that when he emptied himself, he gave it all away. He took the risk of it not being possible to turn it around. Because he isn't just one of us in an outfit. He's not just pretending to be human. He actually became one of us to the point that his parents, when he's a baby, have to rush off to a far-off land to protect him from uh, the swords of the Roman soldiers. We find him 33 years later being beaten senseless. This isn't an invulnerable God hiding in a human suit. Uh, this is one of us. We find him hanging on a cross. We find him hanging on a cross, shouting out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He really has taken the risk of becoming one of us. Now, a bit of me wants to say, could you believe that? Except that, strangely, we do. That he really became one of us. Whatever emptying himself meant. Because we know that he got tired. We know that he had to eat and drink. We know that he was thirsty hanging on the cross. We know that he bled like all the rest of us. We know he could be killed. Uh, we know he got frightened in the Gethsemane. He was so anxious. He was sweating blood. He actually became one of us. Wow. An action. 
And then thirdly, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I think we're being told of an attitude in Christ, we're being told of an action by Christ, and we're being told of an atonement which is achieved by Christ. Because the very thing that we're here celebrating today and every day of our lives is what he did on the cross, what he achieved for us. We will pick this up, obviously, again in a few weeks when we're approaching Easter of what that atonement meant, what this person did for us. But you could nearly just pause there for the rest of our lives in wonderment and awe and worship of this person. But the uh, passage of Scripture doesn't end there. Let me take you back to the... It, you see that... It's hard to see that. I'm sure it's probably impossible to see that on the screen. But you see the, the verses that I've read to you, who being a very nature God, did, uh, rather he made himself nothing, being found he humbled himself. Uh, the subject of all the verbs is Jesus. Then we get this big word, therefore. And I said as I was reading it to you, a big word, therefore. Because the subject of the sentences now becomes God and not Jesus. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. It's when this series of steps gets to the bottom, God steps in. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and we have this other, this exaltation. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of the Father. That's the vulnerability. And then this is the exaltation by Heavenly Father God, who seemed to abandon him on the cross, but then came rushing back before Sunday morning to exalt him. Now, I think that's very important because here's the secret behind all of this. Can I let you know something? That when I gave you that uh, passage of Scripture on the screen as this thing about Jesus, I didn't give you all of it. Just above the words Christ Jesus, there's another line, uh, but I put it in black print so you can't see it. So I'm going to reveal it to you. That's what Paul says. Have the same mindset as. And then he tells this. Because Paul, 20 years on, 30 years on, is watching the church in Philippi. And just like my Ford Sierra, it's full of bumps and scrapes and all sorts of things. And, but Paul, unlike me, isn't prepared to abandon it, to just get worse and worse and worse. And you know what, someday I'll just buy another one and get rid of it. Um, Paul has never given up the idealism of believing that the church is all that God has ever dreamed of us becoming. And he constantly has an ideal image of what the body of Christ should be like, of how we should be affecting our world. And no matter how bumped and scraped we become, 
he never gives up on that and says, well, you know what, that's okay. Just be bumped and scraped and stained and everything else. He is constantly, God is constantly dreaming and hoping of the big jumper, that there is more, there is better. There, is yet there are yet things to be discovered and learned and become part of us. And that this is why St. Paul wrote this to these people. He wanted them to have a mindset that wanted to see that, that was something like the big jumper. He wants them to grow into something more, to become what was dreamed of, what was hoped for. And he won't give up on that vision for them. So he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he describes him. And in all the bumps and bruising that are our lives, that are our relationships, that are us in this community, in this city, in this world that we're in, the things that we failed to do, the things we haven't done well, the things we could have done better or gave up on, Jesus continues hoping. And it's his very own mindset was that he never gave up on anyone. And that's where we get to in Philippians chapter 2. A kind of setting, setting of the church's attitude and actions to somehow fit into this image of what Jesus is like. And therefore, it's terribly challenging. It could mean letting go of some things and saying, you know what, I just need to let that go. It could be an action of deciding uh, maybe what the Church of Ireland or some other denomination or some other movement or something that maybe we haven't got it all right and maybe there's something about us that needs to empty ourselves, empty. And then the more challenging thing of all is not just to apply this to church, but to apply this to actual life. Let me give you one wee example of how this didn't work, right? And then we'll finish. Um, a number of years ago in the King's Hall, John, who organizes Summer Madness, uh, has always allowed there to be a political dimension to what goes on at Summer Madness, so invites politicians in, sometimes takes risks, have to say, of inviting politicians in to share ideas and thoughts and allow Christian young people or young people who are searching for faith to engage with this and try to apply the Bible and faith to it. Well, I don't know if you remember, John, but you let me chair a debate one time where there was a um, two nationalists and two unionists uh, sharing their hopes for Northern Ireland, as you would imagine they would want to do. Um, and I was chairing this. Uh, so I got to share, I was allowed to share my thoughts at the end. So this passage of scripture, um, I think is foundational in all those sorts of discussions. So at the end of it, uh, I suggested to the unionist politicians, uh, and that swapped over in case you think I was only picking on one lot, uh, and then over to the other side, I said, how about if following the mindset of Jesus, you decided to let go of your aspirations 
and you decided to let go of your aspirations and work for the other side's aspirations. Like, how about if you said to them, what could we do that would bless you, that would make you feel you really belong? And as long as they reply with, that's very good of you, here's a list. Right? What about, what would we need to do to make you feel safe and secure as if you belong? I said, wouldn't that change the debate? If democracy, rather than rule by the majority, was how the majority cares for the minority, which is quite a radical way to think of a democracy. How does the majority look after the minority? Anyway, it wasn't well received. Uh, <laughs> that that anybody, should, anybody should let go of anything uh, for the sake of someone else. And you know what? It's exactly the same in all our lives, isn't it? I'm not given an inch in this car park for that other car, yeah? Uh, I'm not given my place in the queue for that other person. But to have the same mindset as Christ, it's a radical way of life to maybe give up something of who I am for the sake of others. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let's stand and sing.